You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Don't forget to pack the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies for a post-errands pick-me-up. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Welcome to Noble Blood, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. Listener discretion advised. Hey guys, this is Dana Schwartz, the host of the podcast Noble Blood. First, just thank you so much for listening. Before the episode, just a few quick announcements. I have a book coming out in February called Immortality, A Love Story. It's a sequel to my last book, Anatomy, A Love Story, which is about a young woman who's a surgeon in 1800 Scotland. And if you like this podcast, I really think you would like it. Check it out. And please, if you're at all interested, pre-order Immortality, A Love Story. All the links are in the episode description, along with links to official Noble Blood merch and the Noble Blood Patreon, where I post episode scripts and have access to monthly bonus episodes. But as always, the best support is just listening to the show. I am so grateful we've officially made 100 episodes of this show, and it just feels so surreal. So thank you so much for your interest in history and for joining me on this journey, and let's do 100 more. In July of the year 1324, the citizens of Cairo were waiting. For weeks, conversation in the city had been dominated by the imminent arrival of one man. Though by this point, man hardly seemed an adequate enough term to encompass a figure as impressive as the fabled Malian sultan Mansa Musa. Tales of his exploits had started as simple rumor singular whispers carried over desert roads by merchants and scholars, each story eventually stitched together in ports of trade until their subject became more myth than man. He was said to be passing through Cairo on his way to complete Hajj, or pilgrimage, to Mecca as required by the Islamic faith. This typically would have been news enough, though oddly, Speculation surrounding his arrival had much less to do with his destination and more to do with the methods in which he decided to travel. Had you been walking through Cairo's marketplace that summer as you examined the countless wares from all over the continent or even beyond, each vendor likely would have regaled you with their own sliver of gossip that they had gleaned from their time on the road. I hear he travels with 10,000 men, one of the vendors might have said, only for another merchant across the way to cut in. Ten? No, I heard it was at least 50, if not 60,000. To others, the size of his party likely mattered little compared to the treasures said to have made the trip along with him. Upwards of 80 camels were rumored to have been brought for the sole purpose of transporting a combined total of 17 tons or over 34,000 pounds of gold. This, of course, was in addition to the 
500 enslaved workers who were each tasked with carrying a gold staff for the duration of the over 4,000-mile trek from Mali on the western coast of Africa to Mecca in what is today Saudi Arabia. Now, when considering the vast distance Mansa Musa had to travel in order to complete the Hajj, it makes sense that he and his party would need ample resources and manpower to reach their destination. But at the same time, you can hardly reason that the transport of 80 camel loads of gold and 60,000 men were for the sole purpose of practicality. And just as the resources Musa acquired for his journey were not necessarily essential to complete the journey, if the whispers in the streets of Cairo were anything to go by, his Hajj was likely not the sole reason for his pilgrimage across the African continent. Religious piety may have been the impetus for his travels, but it's clear through the level of extravagance by which he chose to travel that Mansa Musa's much-anticipated stay in Cairo had one goal above all else. He wanted to make a statement. And so, as the iconic red silk banners of Mansa Musa's caravan finally crested the western horizon, the citizens of Cairo waited with bated breath and a gold-hungry glint in their eyes to see exactly what type of statement he would make. I'm Dana Schwartz, and this is Noble Blood. Now, before we get started, I want to take a moment to speak to the importance of oral histories in the African tradition. Today, when we tend to think of history, our minds are often pulled toward images of dusty libraries filled top to bottom with heavy, leather-bound tomes. But the truth is, this image is something we, as a largely Eurocentric culture, have been conditioned to believe is the, quote, right way to record history. It's true that there are not many written records of Mansa Musa's reign, at least not from medieval West African sources. But that is largely because the history of West Africa was passed down through oral tradition rather than written tradition. There's a harmful misconception that, quite honestly, was likely perpetuated by many of the institutions behind a fair number of the subjects of this podcast, that histories passed down through spoken word are, quote, inferior or less civilized than that of written record. But it simply isn't true. In fact, in West Africa, oral historians were often prized scholars, also known as griots, who were expressly forbidden from physically recording historical moments so as to prove their intellect when recalling the moment back to be passed down for future generations. And if for some reason you need further proof that oral traditions are not some signifier of, quote, uncivilized culture, just think of the Odyssey or the Iliad, both of which were passed down through oral tradition for hundreds of years before ever being put to paper. Or if you want a more relevant example, this very podcast, and by extension podcasting as a whole, could be considered a certain kind of oral history. All this is to say, though these oral histories may lack specificity in terms of dates and times, the way we might expect from written history, I think it's important to analyze the lens by which we've traditionally been taught to understand events from the past in the first place. 
It's also important to recognize the benefits to oral histories that written histories often lack. In the case of Mansa Musa, the inherent mythos around the Hajj he went on, as well as his empire's incredible riches, would, for better or worse, go on to shape Mali for generations after Musa's passing. Now, back to our story. It's unclear exactly when Musa was born or the specific year he came into power, but historians agree he became Mansa, or Sultan, around 1312, likely when Musa was in his early to mid-twenties. Though perhaps more interesting than his age was the circumstances by which Musa was given the throne in the first place. In an account recorded by the scholar Alumari, Musa made it clear that he was never meant to have inherited the throne when he did. His unlikely rise was thanks to a previous sultan's interest in exploration. Quote, The king who was my predecessor did not believe that it was impossible to discover the furthest limits of the Atlantic Ocean, the sultan is quoted saying to the governor of Cairo. Well, before the couplet in 1492 Columbus sailed the ocean blue ever came into relevance, leaders around the world were already looking to the horizons off their coastlines, ready to discover possible worlds unknown. This is evidenced by the exploration of figures like the Chinese mariner Zheng He, who, under the guidance of the Ming Dynasty in the late 14th and early 15th centuries, would travel as far as East Africa. It's also evidenced by Arab, Indian, and East African explorers. However, unlike Zheng He, or Christopher Columbus for that matter, Mansa Musa's predecessor would never be highlighted in history for his maritime exploration. In his first attempt, Musa's predecessor sent out 200 ships into the Atlantic with enough gold and provisions to last years, and directions, quote, not to return until they reached the end of it or their provisions and water gave out, end quote. In the end, out of the 200 ships, only one returned, stating that the rest of the ships had gone on without them. But this answer did not satisfy the sultan. In fact, the lone surviving ship inspired Musa's predecessor to prepare an additional 2,000 ships, half of which were to be filled with provisions for their travels and the other to carry the men, this time with the sultan himself among their ranks. Though before he was set to depart, the sultan appointed Musa to lead while he was out at sea. Quote, he left me to deputize for him and embarked upon the Atlantic Ocean with his men, Mansa Musa would eventually recount to the governor of Cairo. Quote, that was the last we saw of him and all those men who were with him, and so I became king in my own right. End quote. To this day, no one knows for sure exactly what happened to Musa's predecessor. Many historians assume he simply got lost at sea though some revisionist historians believe he could have potentially made it to the Americas. Regardless, the fact remained that Musa's predecessor never returned to Mali, therefore bestowing Musa himself with the title history would forever remember him by, Mansa Musa. As a young ruler, Mansa Musa had inherited a similarly young empire. He was only the ninth Mansa to take the throne, and as such, he was eager to establish not only himself, but Mali as a nation on a global scale. And so, with a young empire under his command and 
what surely must have felt like the eyes of the entire world watching his next move, Mansa Musa chose to give those watching him something to look at. If the 80 camel loads of gold and 60,000 person traveling party were any indicator, it should come as no surprise that the Hajj of Mansa Musa was by far the defining moment of his reign. Though it should be noted that an undertaking of this magnitude wasn't accomplished overnight. In reality, most historians agree Musa likely began planning for the Hajj not long after he was put on the throne, meaning he would have been orchestrating this trek for at least a decade before ever setting foot on the road. Historian Michael A. Gomez estimates, quote, if 10 years are allowed for preparations, some 6,000 persons would have been captured per annum for this purpose, end quote. A statement that is supported by the scholar Alumari, saying of Mansa Musa, quote, the king of this country wages a permanently holy war on the pagans of the Sudan who are his neighbors, end quote. On top of the Quote, slaving campaigns Musa orchestrated in order to create an infrastructure by which to support the Hajj he was determined to complete, the 80 camels worth of gold didn't appear overnight. By the time Mansa Musa reached Cairo, rumors as to where exactly the gold came from had fully taken on lives of their own. The most common fallacy was the rumored gold plant, which, separate from Musa, had been circulating as early as the 10th century during the reign of the Ghanaian Empire. The gold plant varied in description depending on the source, one source saying it, quote, grows in the sand as carrots do, end quote, while Musa himself spread the notion it grew, quote, in the spring and blossomed after the rains in open country, end quote. Unfortunately, as thrilling as the discovery of a medieval West African gold plant would no doubt be for geologists and jewelers everywhere, the reality of the gold's origin is likely a little less exciting. While there's no way to tell for sure where exactly the gold came from, most historians posit the production and export of copper, as well as the trade of salt, could have been the source of the majority of Musa's fortune. And for those confused as to why anyone would trade copper, or let alone salt, for something as valuable as gold, I think it's important to remember gold as a metal has significantly less useful properties than copper, which could be made into a variety of tools, or salt, which is quite literally necessary for human survival. Meanwhile, gold's primary uses were either as a type of cosmetic adornment or more importantly for Mansa Musa, a form of currency. And even though Musa did not shy away from the lore that in Mali, gold basically grew on trees, or in the ground like carrots, for him to amass as much wealth as he did was no small feat. Considering the substantial time and energy reserved solely for the preparations for the Hajj, it's worth asking why Mansa Musa chose to pursue a traveling caravan of this scale in the first place. Had he purely been wanting to complete the pilgrimage for the sake of his own religious practice, he could have easily traveled with a much smaller party that required a fraction of the resources. 
But clearly, Musa had ulterior motives when preparing for his journey. The first motive might have had to do with Mansa Musa's claim to the throne. The line of succession for the early Malian Empire remains a point of contention with medieval West African historians. There was no clear path of inheritance, the way we've become familiar with inheritance within the context of European monarchies. This could have been for a host of different reasons, though I think one of the most important to consider would be the simple fact that the Malian Empire as a whole was, for lack of a better term, young. And considering the untraditional methods by which Musa himself was left with a kingdom in his charge, he likely chose to use the Hajj as a way to exhibit his power and solidify his possibly precarious hold on the throne. In addition to securing his power as Mali's ruler, the Hajj also offered Musa ample opportunity to expand Mali's borders and influence far beyond the reaches of West Africa. It's clear through the preparations made for his journey, Musa meant to project a certain image as he made his way across the African continent. Though in all likelihood, the 17 tons of gold, 18 tons if you include the gold staffs held by the enslaved workers in his caravan, spoke for themselves, as citizens of the cities he passed through gawked at his overt displays of wealth. It should be noted that while the impressive caravan was, no doubt, used to bolster his reputation, it did serve a practical purpose as well. After over a decade spent acquiring enough manpower and gold to make the impact he was seeking, when Mansa Musa finally began the Hajj in earnest, he used a fair amount of his gold and manpower to erect mosques as he went. Before all else, Mansa Musa was a devout Muslim and sought to spread the teachings of Islam as he set out to complete the Hajj he had so long prepared for. In this way, a good portion of the young sultan's funds and slave labor went to the construction of mosques, which is also why reports as to exactly how many people and how much gold he brought on his journey vary so wildly. It's likely that Musa began his pilgrimage with far more resources than he ended it with. But then again, that was by design. The construction of mosques on Musa's trek across the African continent not only served as a way to parade his affluence, but more importantly, as a nonviolent expansion of his empire. Dissimilar to his slaving campaigns, even for those who did not practice Islam, the mosques were more than just a space for religion. As Mansa Musa continued his travels, word began to spread about the wealth and prosperity of the Malian Empire. As such, the mosques attracted scholars and merchants from outside Mali's borders, making what began as villages and towns evolve into urban marketplaces, ultimately stimulating Mali's economic growth. And as the chain of mosques left in the wake of his pilgrimage grew, word about the wildly rich and powerful Mansa Musa continued to spread east across the African continent until July 1324, when finally, after weeks of waiting, the fabled Malian Sultan approached the city of Cairo. Even after funding a trail of mosques behind him, 
Musa still had plenty of gold and men to make the impact he wanted in Cairo. Upon his entrance in the city, Mansa Musa immediately began spending exorbitant amounts of gold, resupplying his provisions, but also undoubtedly trying to flex his abundance to the dazzled crowd. One scholar is quoted as saying, quote, When Mansa Musa first arrived in Cairo, he and his followers bought all kinds of things. They thought their money was inexhaustible, end quote. So extravagant was his spending that, in the end, Mansa Musa would inevitably cause such mass inflation within Cairo that their economy would need a decade before it could fully recover. As the city attempted to gain some control over Musa's runaway inflation, the Malian Sultan would leave Cairo to continue on to Mecca to complete his Hajj. It wouldn't be until Mansa Musa eventually returned to Cairo on his way home that the Sultan would be faced with a seemingly impossible truth. The money that he had once spent as if it were inexhaustible was gone, and he now had no means of funding his return home. When Mansa Musa met the city limits of Cairo for the second time, his reception was far more subdued than the parade his initial arrival had been. One scholar reported that after reaching Mecca and completing his pilgrimage, when he attempted to begin the journey back to Mali, quote, many of his followers and camels perished from cold so that only a third of them arrived in Cairo with him, end quote. After a few wrong turns proved fatal for a significant portion of Musa's traveling party, the Sultan was left not just short-handed, but underfunded as well. In the wake of the Sultan's extreme spending that had essentially flooded Cairo's market with gold, Mansa Musa suddenly found himself with empty pockets, while the streets he had paraded down just months before glittered with the riches once carried by his now significantly smaller caravan. In order to return home, Musa was forced to take out loans in the market that he himself had caused to massively inflate. Despite the Sultan's sudden hardships, Cairo's moneylenders were more than happy to extend lines of credit to the now penniless Mansa Musa, with steep interest rates, of course. Now, due to the nature of the sources surrounding these stories, there are some discrepancies as to if or when these loans were repaid. Some claim Mansa Musa basically cheated the lenders in Cairo out of the substantial interest his loan would have no doubt accrued by paying back everything he owned in its entirety as soon as he stepped back on Malian soil, while other sources claim that they never received any sort of repayment at all. It's impossible to say exactly what happened to the money after he left Cairo for the second time, but the fate of his loans ultimately made little difference to the whole of Mansa Musa's legacy. Even though Musa's reign would end just 13 years after his Hajj in 1337, the ripple effects of his actions as Mali Sultan would be felt for countless generations to come. To this day, Mansa Musa is estimated to be the richest person to have ever lived, with a roughly estimated net worth of over $400 billion. 
I should note that due to the discrepancies in exactly how much gold he had, as well as the not exactly linear methods used to translate his supply of gold into inflation-adjusted dollar amounts, this figure is far from what I would consider a solid number. But regardless, Mansa Musa's wealth did not carry clout just because of whatever dollar amount we place on it. The mosques he erected across his pilgrimage spread the practice of Islam, but they also worked to attract scholars and merchants from beyond Mali's borders, making urban centers of education and trade available in previously remote, isolated villages. Though Musa may have ultimately lacked the funds for his return home, his initial display of power and affluence not only achieved his initial goal to solidify his place on the Malian throne, but secured his legacy far beyond the borders of West Africa. This is perhaps best exemplified in one of the prime examples of medieval mapmaking, the Catalan Atlas. Completed in 1375, the Catalan Atlas was created by a Jewish mapmaker, Abraham Crescus, who had been commissioned by King John I of Aragon to create the map as a gift for King Charles V of France. When looking at the atlas from afar, one of the most striking elements about the piece is the amount of color used. And not just color, but the all-too-familiar warm sheen of gold. From the compass on the first panel to flags denoting different nations, your eyes can't move a few inches before being caught by the rich metallic adornment. However, the map's most interesting use of gold is down at the bottom of the first panel, where the image of a dark-skinned royal sits on a throne. A gold crown is painted atop his head, while the man is holding a scepter in one hand and a golden orb in the other. When Mansa Musa inherited the throne, Mali was a thriving empire in its own right, but its borders held itself back from the rest of the world. Musa's inclusion in the Catalan Atlas, a piece that was created over 50 years after his legendary Hajj on an entirely different continent, exemplifies the reach his reign had on a global scale. Considering the lengths Masa Musa went to acquire the materials and manpower to complete his Hajj, it almost makes sense that Musa essentially put himself on the global map. That was the story of Mansa Musa and his legendary Hajj, but stick around after a brief sponsor break to hear how his legend continues to persist in popular culture today. The weather is getting warmer, so it is time to say goodbye to your jackets and heavy sweaters. Hello to shorts and tees. If you are anything like me, you have this urge around this time of year to completely overhaul your wardrobe. But ideally, you want to do that without spending a fortune. Luckily, I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. They have these amazing European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts from $30, washable silk tops, timeless 14-karat gold jewelry, and honestly, my new favorite pair of summer sunglasses I got from Quince. Get warm weather ready with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash noble for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash noble to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash noble. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. In these 700 years since his pilgrimage, outside of Sid Meier's Civilization video game franchise, Mansa Musa's name has largely been kept out of our public consciousness. That is, unless you know where to look. Now, there is no official confirmation citing the inspiration for this scene, but if you remember the beloved 1992 Disney animated film Aladdin, you may remember a certain song called Prince Ali. In a bid to win the heart of Princess Jasmine, Aladdin and the genie concoct a plan to impress her, by making Aladdin appear to be a rich and powerful Prince Ali Ababwa, a prince who proceeds to enter the city of Agrabah atop an elephant led by, perhaps, a familiar type of procession of men clearing the path for his arrival. If you haven't connected the dots already, allow me to direct you to some of the more obvious comparisons such as Aladdin dressing as Prince Ali literally flinging handfuls of gold coins from where he sits atop his elephant from a seemingly endless pile of money. Or when Prince Ali's procession sings of all the riches he brings, including 75 golden camels. To which, of course, we all know Robin Williams as the genie, parodies being an announcer like at the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, saying, Don't they look lovely, June? Of course, Aladdin's 75 golden camels are camels made of gold, as opposed to Mansa Musa's 80 camels, which were real live camels with gold on their backs. But the inclusion of this lyric is so specific that, at least in my opinion, it should be considered maybe a nod to the Malian king, whose legendary riches and affinity for showmanship continue to enthrall us to this day. Noble Blood is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. Noble Blood is hosted by me, Dana Schwartz. Additional writing and researching done by Hannah Johnston, Hannah Zwick, Mira Hayward, Courtney Sender, and Lori Goodman. The show is produced by Rima Il-Kayali. 
with supervising producer Josh Thane and executive producers Aaron Menke, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com.